title of our message today is The Two Witnesses, and we are continuing our verse-by-verse look at this incredible book of Revelation, and we'll do a little bit of review today just because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been here, and we everybody knows how much we love to review, so we'll go ahead and do that. Uh, we find ourselves... In our study, we're quite a ways into the book, almost uh, getting close to halfway probably through the uh, text of Revelation. And obviously, we've covered a tremendous amount of ground already. We, if you'll remember, the, this uh, book begins with this vision essentially of Jesus Christ, uh, the risen Christ in chapter 1, and that uh, is to show the authority with which John is speaking here or that he is writing he's and it also tells us that he's writing down what uh, Christ revealed to him and we see the risen Christ uh, which differentiates the book of Revelation from some uh, other texts that are known as apocryphal texts or uh, pseudonymous texts you may have heard of some uh, writings that are by anonymous authors claiming to be someone else and uh, writing about future events many times. The book of Revelation is not that. It is written by the Apostle John. We saw around 95 to 96 uh, AD. And uh, he is writing the words that Jesus Christ revealed to him. That's why he has this vision of Christ is included in the first chapter. And then we see that the book is mostly about the glorious appearing of Christ at the second coming when he comes to establish his kingdom upon the earth. John is primarily detailing the events that lead up to that event that so much of the Bible is about. The, the story of the Old Testament, essentially, is how God created the world, including man. Man sinned, essentially ruined it, and we're left with the promise that one day the world is going to be restored to the way God created it to be. That's the Old Testament. And a major part of that is the coming of the seed of the woman who would crush sin. Sin is the problem. The problem isn't Democrats or high gas prices or rhinos or whatever you want want to insert in there. Our problem is sin, plain and simple. And Jesus Christ, God the eternal son, came into the world to solve the problem of sin, and he uh, accomplished kind of the consequences of sin. He, he accomplished taking care of the consequences of sin when he came the first time and dying on the cross. When he comes the second time, then he will establish his kingdom upon this earth. Revelation lays out the series of events that will lead up to his second coming and establishment of the kingdom. Before that, we saw that Jesus has a message for the churches, the things which are, you'll remember Revelation 119 is our outline for the book, right? The things which you have seen, the things which are seven messages to seven literal churches that existed at that time in history with that, of course, have a secondary application to us living today. Uh, The message to those churches was keep doing the things you're doing right and stop doing the things you're doing wrong. Uh, Yeah, that's that's for us today. But those letters are literal letters that went to those literal churches that existed at that time. Now we find ourselves in the section of the book that is written about the things which will take place after these things. This is primarily the events that are during the future seven-year tribulation period, uh, sometimes called the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, has a a number of titles. We in uh, classical dispensational churches have, have, like Flushing Bible churches, have come to just call it the tribulation. And so when you hear 
uh, us, people like us, saying the tribulation, they mean the seven-year period that comes before the establishment of the kingdom. That's what the majority of Revelation is about. We saw the scene in heaven first, chapters 4 and 5, the, the uh, offering of the scroll, if you will, to Christ himself. He is the one who is breaking the seals. He is, it, this is God's judgment being poured out upon the earth from the breaking of the first seal. And that started to happen in chapter 6. And then we've uh, went through the seal judgments. We had a break in the action with chapter 7. And then getting into uh, chapters 8 and 9, we saw trumpet judgments, and we find ourselves in chapter 11 now. Of course, here's our chronology. We are living uh, uh, in this time period. The things which are is uh, concerning the church age. Those were literal churches. We're still a church. Uh, Again, not that those letters are laying out a historical timeline or something like that. No, they're messages to churches. We are still living in that church age. That church age will come to an end with the rapture of the church. We studied about in Sunday school this morning and then the Bema seat. One of, there was a question about what do post-tribulationalists believe. Post-tribulationalists would put the rapture out here, of course, at the end of the tribulation. Our parenthesis mark in their scheme would be all the way out to here, including the tribulation. Then we would be raptured and come back down. The kingdom would happen, and then they conflate this, the great white throne judgment that we read about in Revelation 20. They'd make the Bema seat, and this the same, and story for another time that we'll get to. But here, we will be raptured. We believe the Bible pretty clearly teaches before this tribulation begins. Then the tribulation begins with the seven seal judgments culminating in Revelation 19 with the seventh bowl and Christ literally coming to the earth again, to establish his kingdom. A 1,000-year period, like it says in Revelation 26 times, it says that. So the seal judgments, it began with a pseudo-peace, then there was war, then there was famine, then there was uh, death through disease, famine, and more war on unprecedented scale. There's uh, mass martyrdom with the fifth seal, Sixth seal, we have signs in the, in the stars and the, with the sun, the great earthquake. In the seventh seal, there was another earthquake and uh, the unleashing of these trumpet judgments. We, we're looking at this through a, a view that is called, there's a little bit of a pun there, the telescoping view. Uh, some believe that the seals, trumpets, and bowls all describe each one describing the seven-year period. So the seals talk about the whole seven-year. The trumpets talk about the entire seven years. The bowls talk about the entire seven years. That's not really uh, technically correct, the way that it is being uh, brought out in the text. Rather, we see that the judgments are increasing in intensity over that time. There may be some similarities, but there is not exactness there. Uh, Rather, the seal judgments happen. Then we have a break in the narrative in chapter 7. The trumpets judgments happen. Then there is a break between the sixth and seventh trumpet. That's where we find ourselves now in the text. Uh, And then when we get to uh, Revelation Well, we'll see it next week, probably, or maybe in two weeks, the seventh trumpet that leads into the seven bulls. There's kind of an extended break there. The bulls will pick up in Revelation 16. And then there's another break after the sixth bull to to describe some information. And then the seventh bull poured out uh, with Jesus's second coming. So that's what's known as the telescoping view. 
The, the judgments are increasing in intensity. It's essentially this entire, in its entirety, is the seven-year tribulation, beginning with the first seal, ending with the seventh bowl. So these trumpet judgments, we've seen the, the judgments increase with a third of the earth being burned, a third of the, the trees being destroyed, all the green grass being destroyed. And then uh, this uh, great mountain being cast into the sea, a meteor, a volcano, something along those lines. Uh, probably a third of the sea turns to blood, a third of the sea life dies, a third of the ships destroyed. We saw and uh, that's today, if that were to happen, it would be about 100,000 ships being destroyed. That's uh, unprecedented. <laughs> Uh, we on our trip we were able to go to uh, Andrew Jackson's home and talked a little bit about the War of 1812. I think it said in the War of 1812 that uh, Britain had 36 ships in their entire navy. So when uh, uh, Oliver ha- Oliver Hazard Perry captured six ships on Lake Erie, that was a sixth of their entire navy. Uh, that just came to mind because there's a lot more ships today than there were <laughs> back back in those days. But uh, the third trumpet, a great star falls to the earth. Fresh water is turned to bitter. Many people die because of that. You just throw that in. <laughs> throw in many people are dying here. Uh, there, there is death on an unprecedented scale throughout the entirety of the tribu- uh, tribulation. The trumpet judgments, the sixth or the fourth trumpet, sorry, that more signs in the sky, something that's prophesied about throughout the Bible, this darkening of the sun, the moon and the stars, these kinds of events taking place. The fifth trumpet is actually the first woe that was warned about at the end of the fourth trumpet judgment. That's these creatures coming up out out of the abyss. We saw probably fallen angels is the most likely explanation for what these are create pain and discomfort for people that's so intense they want to die but it only lasts for uh, five months only a hundred and forty four the one uh, there should be in front of that the one hundred and forty four thousand Jewish witnesses that were talked about in Revelation 7 uh, are exempt from that judgment And then I believe last time we saw the sixth trumpet judgment, which is the second woe. Well, no, actually last time we made it through chapter 10. Uh, The sixth trumpet is the second woe, but it goes all the way through the end of of chapter 11, the second woe does. Uh, This vast demonic army, we came to the conclusion, is released upon the earth and they kill one third of mankind. So at least half of the earth's population has been killed during this period of time. And like I mentioned before, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't include uh, many people dying and obvious uh, events that would cause death like these uh, earthquakes that we've seen in this kind of thing. There is carnage again, on an unprecedented scale. And here's our timeline for the tribulation judgments. Uh, there are three no-doubters on this, uh, on this timeline here that the, that the rapture, uh, maybe four, uh, the rapture happens before the tribulation begins. The tribulation begins not with the rapture, but with the breaking of the first seal, the first seal judgment is the beginning of the tribulation. Second, no doubter about the tribulation period is that the midpoint is when the Antichrist will set up uh, an idol of himself, essentially, in the temple. We'll talk about that a little bit today. That's the midpoint of the tribulation. And the, the end of the tribulation is Jesus Christ coming again. Uh, We've established uh, kind of, this is my opinion. Feel free to have a different one. Uh, My opinion is that the seals and trumpets make up the first half of the tribulation. The bulls make up the second half. And we'll talk more about that in the coming 
weeks. Last time we saw this chapter 10, the angel and the little book. We saw this strong angel coming uh, down from heaven. The scene has kind of changed up until then. John has been in heaven. He was called there in Revelation chapter 4. Interestingly, after the messages to the churches, he's called to heaven. And he's been there, I believe, since until we see this change in scene in chapter 10 where this angel is coming down from heaven to meet John on the earth, essentially. He's a strong angel. We don't know who he is. We don't know his name. We don't have to assume his name or make one up for him. He's a strong angel. He exhibits the attributes of God. And then John hears these this booming thunder-like voice that was actually communicating something to him. He goes to write it down. He's prohibited from doing that. Again, yeah, we don't really need to assume what that message is or guess or anything. I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. Nobody knows what it is in spite of what you read and hear on the internet. Uh, so then this uh, angel makes this solemn statement uh, about essentially about coming judgment and, and that it's coming from the creator God of the universe. And uh, John is going to be the messenger who carries this, this message to the world. Uh, and so he is instructed to eat this scroll that is presented. We saw this isn't the same scroll from chapter five, different scroll. Essentially, it's John being recommissioned as a, prof a prophet for God. This is his recommissioning, if you will in uh, chapter 10. And this is something that, that happened, has happened to several of the prophets. Ezekiel uh, experienced something almost exactly the same as this. Uh, and so he eats the scroll. It's sweet in his mouth. He's a messenger for God. That's, that's pretty great. <laughs> that's a great experience for him. He has been chosen to be this messenger. It's a very sweet thing in his mouth. It gets to his stomach. Wow, this message is pretty awful that he has to deliver. Pretty uh, grim report that he has to make to the world. That's what is symbolized there in it being bitter in his stomach. And part of that message to come is what we have in chapter 11, this description of the two witnesses. And uh, those who are not dispensational in their understanding of the Bible. In other words, they don't read the Bible consistently, literally, uh, will say in their commentaries that Revelation chapter 11, boy, we are in one of the toughest places to interpret in the Bible. And that's why you will find a myriad of uh, different opinions about what this means. And so I'll lay it out. I'll put it for it, put it to you in simple terms. What is Revelation 11 talking about? It's talking about two people who will be prophets during the seven-year future tribulation period, and they call down fire from heaven. They can even, uh, it almost appears that they can speak fire and eliminate their enemies they will literally die. They will literally be resurrected. The whole world will see this miracle. They'll be called up to heaven. And the unbelievers are going to be very afraid. There's Revelation chapter 11. We'll go into a little bit more detail about some of the other views. Notice first here that we'll, we'll talk about the temple, the treading, and the 1260 days. We begin with the temple. There's something interesting here that must happen uh, sometime in the future. We have this uh, reference to a temple. Revelation 11.1 1 says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Then the first part of uh, verse 2, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. 
We don't really see it there in the English, but this verse begins with the Greek word chi, uh, translated as then in, a, in the NASB anyway. Uh, and typically it means also. So it, this is, this is t- connecting this back to what has already happened. This is part of John's recommissioning, if you will, that he is, he is describing uh, what, is, what he is taking, has taken into his mouth, that, he's, that it's sweet, uh, he's God's messenger, but here comes, here comes the message, and it's going to be a very bitter one for the people of the world. And so uh, scholars will discuss, you know, oh, who is giving him the measuring rod? Is it the angel? Is it, uh, is it God himself? Is it somebody else? Uh, and who furthermore is speaking here? says that a measuring rod is given to him and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and so forth. Well, the King James Version kind of, uh, and I believe the New King James Version kind of solves, quote unquote, solves the mystery for us and they just put angel in there. And that's textually probably something that was added later, but yeah, that's probably what is, what is being described there. Uh, is this angel is the one, at least the one who is giving the measuring rod. Now the speaking part, uh, that I would take that to be that God is the one who is speaking to John in this case. Uh, But why is he told to measure the temple? Well, here's where the fanciful ideas about what the, the, who the two witnesses are and what this chapter is all about. Historicists, if you'll remember, they are those who, for basic views on Revelation, historicists think that it's essentially just describing all of church history up until uh, Christ comes again. So we have uh, the Crusades, we have the Reformation talked about, we have the early church history, all these events, that's what Revelation is essentially about. All of human history until Christ comes again. Well, the historicists will tell us that, that the, the one who is coming and, and even the one who is doing the measuring is Martin Luther, and he's measuring the churches, the, the uh, reformed churches' faithfulness uh, against uh, the quote-unquote Antichrist who is the Pope and the Catholic Church. Now that, you know, uh, it all sounds good, but <laughs> I guess if you're not a Catholic, that sounds good. Uh, but it, there's nothing here to indicate that this is Martin Luther, and this is talking about the 1500s, just a very fanciful uh, idea of what is actually portrayed here in the text. A, that is a perfect example of allowing you, one's imagination to just dream up things and then cram it into the, to the meaning of the text. The words on the page have absolutely no connection to Martin Luther, the Reformation period, the Catholic Church, the Pope, anything uh, remotely along those lines. Uh, The preterist view, preterists essentially, there are varying degrees of preterism, but the preterists in general will believe that uh, there really isn't prophecy in the book. It's describing historical events in the past. And again, there are varying degrees. Some of them see some things as future. Overwhelming majority of what is described in the Bible has already happened. And they, again, of course, will see this as describing the destruction of Jerusalem. So uh, John is being told here to measure the temple that is currently, in their view, currently standing in Jerusalem because a preterist will insist that Revelation was written before A.D. 70, not A.D. 95 or 96, like we studied and show the evidence is pretty, pretty near conclusive that this book was written well after the temple was already destroyed 
in AD 70. Nevertheless, preterists will see this as John measuring the temple. Uh, Those evil Jewish people were unfaithful and they are deserving of the destruction that is coming. You know, I'm telling you, you read some of the preterist uh, commentaries, and I think I've said it before. You just kind of, oh, I hope lightning doesn't strike because I'm just reading this. It is, it is, their view of the Jewish people and Israel in general is uh, anti-Semitic. That that is pretty much the only term that would could it be applied to it. Uh, another view, the idealist or spiritual view. I like idealist uh, title better. Uh, again, they will say this is just a generic measuring of Christians and their faithfulness in general. So let's read this again. Get up and measure the temple of God and those and the altar and those who worship in it. We don't have a temple. Uh, We don't have an altar. We have a communion table here. This isn't a temple. Uh, So, yeah, it's not the church. Isn't what is being described here. We'll leave it. We'll leave it at that. Uh, You know, what is later on, we see the holy city is mentioned here. So if this is talking about Christians, you know, well, what's the holy city? Is it Washington, D.C.? Is it uh, Constantinople, maybe, or Rome? That's probably a better uh, example for what most would believe, the holy city, Rome. Could it be London? That, After all, that's the head of the Episcopal Church. Maybe Nashville. Suzanne and I were in Nashville, head, the SBC headquarters. That's in Nashville. Maybe that's what the holy city is. Oh, wait, the text tells us what the holy city is. It's Jerusalem, of course, that we'll see in the comer, coming uh, weeks. This is also not a measuring of the physical size of the temple. That comes later in Revelation 21. So uh, basically, Revelation and all of the Bible comes down to how do we treat God's word? And do we get to just say, oh, well, I don't, this doesn't really fit with my theological position here. This idea of two witnesses and this happening in the future, and there's a temple, but there isn't a temple now. So that means there has to be one in the future. Uh, that means Israel actually is something, not just a, a nation along with the other 180 nations in the United Nations or however many there are. So now those dispensationalists can't be right. So uh, this is talking about Martin Luther. We can't do that. We can't do that as dispensationalists. Even if we see some things in the Bible like Oh, let's say Isaiah 25 that talks about God's people being hidden in caves. Oh, that's the rapture. That, that's us being raptured before the tribulation. Oh, let's be careful. <laughs> Just be careful with it. How do we treat God's word? God's word tells us how to treat God's word. Second Peter 1 19 says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure in the actual written down Bible is what Peter is referencing there to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Does God's word shine in a dark place? Yeah, it does. It's pretty dark right now here. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, including the Apostle John. He isn't making this up. He received it from God, and he is relating it to us, written down on paper for for it to be preserved and for us to read. We should let it interpret itself. So what is the measuring? Uh, Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 2, had a very similar experience, a measuring essentially to determine faithfulness to God to see who is faithful and who is not faithful to God. And that is exactly what this measuring is also. 
Notice again that this temple is mentioned. And John is seeing the future. He's writing about the things which are to come, necessitating a future temple, because that's what's being measured here. Again, remember when this was written, A.D. 95, 25 to 26 years after the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. So there is no temple in Jerusalem when John is writing this, but I'm sure he understood, oh, that means there's a temple in the future because that's what he is going to uh, measure. And furthermore, Matthew 24, 15, if you don't take John's word for it, take Jesus's word for it, that there will be a temple in the future, because he describes in Matthew 24, 15, he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the, through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand even, uh, you need to flee. So this abomination of desolation as described by Daniel is what we talked about in the midpoint of the tribulation Right here, the Antichrist setting up an image of himself in the temple. Uh, when you see that, you need to flee. Jesus also, in Luke 21, describes the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, one stone not being left on top of another. Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple. He also prophesied about the abomination of desolation and the future tribulation. Therefore, there must be a future temple after its destruction in A.D. 70. Paul mentions this, this same temple, this same abomination of desolation in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. Speaking of the Antichrist, he says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, when Paul wrote that, the temple hadn't been destroyed. He probably understood that it would, and then there would be a future temple. Now, reading it, we know there has to be a future temple. Furthermore, uh, this temple that is being described here cannot be you and me as believers. It is true that John describes believers as the temple of the living God, 1 uh, Corinthians three sixteen, among others, 1 Corinthians 6. He also mentions believers being the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. That uh, is not what is being described here. How do we know that? Because there's mentioned an altar. Okay, well, if, if in this case, if we're the temple, then what's the altar in, in this scheme that uh, we're measuring Christians, quote unquote, Christians' faithfulness here rather than a literal temple in the future? And furthermore, who are those who are worshiping in it? Oh. <laughs> uh, I will grant to you that self-worship is very prevalent in the evangelical church today. Uh, you don't have to look too far for that. However, uh, that's not what's being described here at all. Uh, this is speaking of a future temple and a measuring of what God is in favor of in this future tribulation period and what he is against. He is for his temple that will be built and the worshipers that are there, true worshipers of God. And he is against the nations, this uh, uh, also known as the earth dwellers, also known as those who are unrepentant. We have seen them mentioned a few times already at least a couple times already, those who see that these judgments are coming from God and say, uh, uh, I still don't believe in you, essentially, is what is being conveyed there by them being uh, unrepentant. 
And so along with this temple, not only does it mean that Israel has to be a nation, they have to be in the land. Uh, we, we, we are living in that time. They are there. Uh, they also, there has to be a Jewish people. They have to be in the land. Uh, Jerusalem isn't just another city on the earth. It's God's holy city, according to this. Uh, and it means that at some point in the future, this nation, Israel, the Jewish people, is going to be building a temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now, how all that exactly is going to be carried out, I'm not exactly sure, but it will happen. Uh, Ezekiel 37 also says that will happen. The nation of Israel will be reborn. That's what the Valley of Dry Bones is all about. That's not a description of spiritual rebirth for Christians or anything like that. It is describing the nation of Israel becoming a nation again. And we are living in that time when those dry bones have come back together. They don't have life in them. They're not uh, believing in the Messiah, but they are back together in unbelief. And we have seen that happen. The day is drawing nearer and nearer as we speak. Something is going to happen when we measure this temple, and that is this treading. Notice Revelation 11, 2, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now here is a... uh, artist's rendition of Herod's temple. We see the temple building itself here. The Holy of Holies would have been in here that we talked about in uh, our communion service this morning where the priest would go one time a year. Uh, Then you have these outer courts where uh, Jewish uh, women could go and... uh, People who weren't priests, these kinds of things, uh, could approach so close to the Holy of Holies, but not all the way in. Then there's the court of the Gentiles is, is even out here. So if you are a Gentile person, that's all the closer you could get to the temple. You were barred from going all the way into uh, places where the priests could go, uh, where men could go, even where the Jewish Uh, where the Jewish women could go or children, this kind of thing. The Gentiles were kept outside of that. And that's what's being referenced here. So we can take away from that that, yes, there's going to be a temple. It will probably be somewhat similar to this, maybe not exact, an exact replication of this, Uh, it's, if it's anything like anything, everything else in the world today, it's going to be incredibly grand and they'll probably have incredible uh, light shows and this kind of thing. But uh, nevertheless, there are some things that are going to be exact. I can assure you of that they already have the plans ready and every, almost everything is ready to go at a moment's notice to rebuild this temple in Jerusalem today. So the, he is told to not measure what is outside of the temple area where the nations are. This is very, this is something that is indicating a, a great change during this tribulation period from what is going on in the world today. Uh, one of my professors in seminary would, uh, posits the idea that there are actually eight, uh, dispensations in the world or in Bible history, separating typical dispensationalists will see seven different dispensations that we've talked about. He separates off the tribulation as its own dispensation. And that idea uh, has some weight to it in my mind, because what is being talked about here is very, very different from what we are experiencing in the church age or church dispensation today, and obviously very different from the kingdom period also. Jesus's commission, we're all uh, familiar with that, Matthew 28, 18. 
Uh, Jesus spoke to them, his apostles, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, and so on and so forth. Very different from the church age that Paul describes in Ephesians 2, 11, 12, and 13. Therefore, remember that Formerly, you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he goes on and describes how this wall of this barrier wall of division has now been taken down in Christ and you have direct access to Christ and and God through his shed blood again this tribulation period uh, this seems to be very different it is like the gospel time period that's one mistake that that People, theologians in general, make assuming that, well, when Christ came, that essentially, that's the church is when uh, Christ was here. And so then we uh, work in work salvation and all of these other various doctrinal problems that come from that, rather than seeing, well, the time of the Gospels, that goes more along with the period of the law. Jesus himself, uh, Matthew 10 Verses five and six that I don't have written down uh, on my on my verse sheet. He talks about going to only the house of Israel. Jesus came to the nation of Israel the first time when he came to the earth. He wanted them to believe in him, so he told his apostles to go to those people during that uh, period of time. Go to the Israelites. Don't go to the nations. And these, because there's a specific reason why the nations, quote unquote, are being excluded during the tribulation period. Uh, he says, Revelation eleven two, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Pateo is the Greek term for uh, tread. Tread underfoot is is really just one word in the Greek and it means literally to walk on, of course. Uh, so here's an example where we can understand that this is symbolizing something because clearly the nations aren't going to be literally walking on top of the Jewish people. So obviously the plain sense doesn't make sense. So we seek some other sense. Symbolically, it means to subjugate them. So The Gentile nations are going to be subjugating Jerusalem and the Israelite people during the tribulation period. And the, I think the only other time that this word is used in this uh, way, pateo, is in Luke 21, verse 24, where it talks about the, the times of the Gentiles, essentially, and the treading underfoot. Uh, And that's describing essentially the period from A.D. 70 until the second coming. This reference here in Revelation 11 is specifically to a a part of that. Notice again, it says for 42 months, this is going to take place. This treading underfoot. The nations will trample the holy city again. Uh, that is Jerusalem. Many, 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 many references throughout the Old Testament describing Jerusalem as the holy city. Isaiah 52. I mean, this is, this would, these three verses would barely even be called a sampling of that. Uh, Daniel 9, 16 Daniel says, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach 
to all those around us over and over and over again. The Bible clearly describes Jerusalem as the holy city. Don't insert your belief system into it unless your belief system is based on literally what the Bible says and you understand the holy city to be Jerusalem. Now, 42 months, this is going to happen for 42 months. So what does that mean? Oh, is it symbolically uh, 1,200 years or something like that? Or, or, well, let's see, what actually is 42 months? Well, that equals three and a half years. Interestingly, many other places in the Bible describe the Gentile nations treading underfoot the nation of Israel, Jerusalem specifically, for three and a half years that is going to take place. Daniel 7, 23, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times and a half a time. That is, that word there is literally year. A year, years, Hebrew, very specific. It has a term, uh, a, an ending that will describe two for plurality or more than two. This case, it is two. So a year, two more years, and a half a year. Three and a half years, Antichrist is going to uh, be wild in his uh, oppression of the Jewish people and the Jewish city of Jerusalem. Uh, Daniel eleven forty five through twelve seven also describes this period of time. This uh, what we will see as the second half of the tribulation period. Zechariah also Zechariah twelve one through fourteen. I would I would love to take the time to read all of these things. You can read those. Uh, later, if you'd like, Zechariah 13, 7 through 9, essentially Zechariah 12 through the end of the book is describing this period of time uh, several times, essentially. Zechariah 14, verse 1 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you, Israel, will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by the very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half toward the south. Now, we can, you can take that and insert all kinds of different meanings into it, but when you read Jerusalem in the Bible, it means Jerusalem, where uh, Jerusalem, yeah, that place where Donald Trump moved the embassy of the United States to, that that literal geographic place on the planet. That's what's being described when we read Jerusalem in the Bible. I don't, I personally don't know of a single time when uh, other than the new heaven and the new earth, it's called the new Jerusalem. It's not just Jerusalem then, but when, when the Bible describes Jerusalem, it's talking about that physical place that we know of in the nation of Israel today, Jerusalem. And here in Zechariah 14, that place is going to come under some serious 
uh, difficulty during the tribulation period. But here in four verses, Zechariah essentially covers three and a half years of the tribulation. It's going to be ravished. Then Christ is going to come again and, and rescue them. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 21, beginning with the abomination of desolation that we saw describing him coming again in the end, the three and a half years of intense persecution for the Jewish people. And I'll submit to you, anyone who sides with the Jewish people, anyone who is essentially being faithful and believing in God during this tribulation period is going to come under this same wrath or this treading underfoot by the Antichrist. But God, in his grace, is going to give two witnesses to the world. Verse 3 of Revelation 11, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Notice that God is the one who is granting the authority or the power here, depending on what translation you have. It, it probably says something there, grant authority, grant power, something along those lines is what's being described. In the NASB, it's in italics, if you'll notice. There, if you have that version of the Bible indicating it's not there in the text, but, it, but it's pretty obviously stated Something is being granted to these two witnesses. And from the rest of the text, we see that it's authority or some kind of power to perform these incredible miracles that will take place. And so we see that they are to prophesy in verse three. Uh, and this, so this ability is coming from God. It is a gift from God given to these two men who will exercise their gift in the future. And so who are these two witnesses? We're probably going to get more into that uh, next week, but just to give you some ideas on some of uh, some of the incredible ideas, uh, it, it, it's some will say that the two witnesses are all of the faithful ministers from uh, essentially the Reformation period. Uh, one preterist, he actually names two people who they are. James Stuart Russell, he's a pretty famous theologian from the 1800s, wrote a book about the second coming. He says, oh, he's without hesitation. The two witnesses are James and Peter, who were both uh, martyred. I don't remember the whole world seeing them and them rising again on the, but we'll, we'll get into more of that, uh, next week. Uh, the two witnesses, according to the idealistic interpretation, of course, that's just faithful people in the church being witnesses throughout history and on and on. We'll go, we'll, uh, go into that in more detail next time. But at any rate, these gifts come from God to these two men, two literal witnesses who will come in the future. Uh, and this is very much like our spiritual gifts, that each and every one of us as a believer in Christ, you have been given a spiritual gift uh, in the same manner, not unlike these two witnesses. You know, we want to look to examples in the Bible that, you know, oh, this guy, he's clearly gifted. Uh, Elijah or Paul obviously was gifted. Well, guess what, believer? You are too. And your gift may not be as dramatic as these two witnesses or Paul and the ability to heal people and, and these kinds of miraculous sign gifts. But nevertheless, uh, you do have the ability to impart something that is more miraculous than healing someone of a disease or, or sickness or uh, something along those lines. You can give a person spiritual life by telling them about the Christ who died for them and offering salvation to them. That, that is a gift that we can exercise. We can exercise the gift of generosity by giving to the church or missionaries or whatever. 
you, the Lord is leading you to give to. You can have the gift of hospitality, showing that to people in your home, in, in the church, being welcoming to people when they, when they come. There, there are uh, a number of various gifts that uh, God still gives to people today. He can do that because he's conquered sin. Ephesians 4, 7, uh, Paul says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He has given spiritual gifts to every believer, just like he's given this ability, this gift to these two witnesses uh, who will prophesy in the future. Again, these are two literal uh, people who will exist in the future who are going to do this. Every other view must symbolize who these people are in some way in order to come to their conclusion. They must symbolize them to say that these are faithful ministers in the Reformation. You have to symbolize this text in order to say that it's faithful Christians. You have to uh, symbolize it to say that it's all of the Old Testament prophets, or of course, that it's James and Peter. Uh, you, th- there, there is such specificity in the language here of events that will take place that it is impossible to make this match with anything that's happened in the past. They must b- therefore be two literal prophets who will exist in the second half of the tribulation period. And we get that from the 1260 days that is mentioned there at the end of verse three for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth, they will prophesy. Now there is, uh, again, they, to the 42 months must be symbolized in order to make it equal anything other than three and a half years. Some will take the, the uh, day equals a year theory and say that, well, it's talking at that's uh, 1260 days. So that means 1260 years. And so obviously it's talking about this vast period of time. No two literal people could on and on and on it goes. Or we can just say that 42 months uh, times 30 days per month, that's going to be going back to the Jewish calendar, the, the Jewish way of keeping track of time. Their months, according to the Bible, were 30 days. Uh, multiply those two and you come up with 1260 days. And so it's equal to uh, maybe I guess it was another slide, the 42 months that were already uh, mentioned, the treading underfoot for 42 months, granting of authority to these two to prophesy for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. That's exactly the same period of time that another reference to the three and a half years, Daniel Twelve seven. Oh, by the way, we have another reference to three and a half years in Israel being uh, in trouble for that period of time coming up in Revelation twelve six. Then the woman that is Israel giving away the answers to uh, what this chapter means. Uh, you should still come to church anyway when we get to Revelation twelve. Uh, the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. For some reason, Israel is having to flee into the wilderness and they're going to be protected for 1,260 days. The same period of time that these two witnesses will be in Jerusalem prophesying and as we'll see next week, doing incredible miracles. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum has an article about uh, Daniel 12, 11, and 12 
Now, you, you may, if you're familiar with that, you may be saying, well, Daniel, there's a contradiction there. That This says 1,260 days. Daniel says 1,290 days plus 1,335 days. So what are you going to do about that? Uh, I would send you to Arnold Fruchtenbaum's article about it, and you can read uh, more than you probably wanted to know about uh, cleansing of the temple, cleansing of the land, and these exact details that he comes up with to equal the 1,335 days from the abomination of desolation until the kingdom actually begins. Very interesting. Nevertheless, these two will prophesy for three and a half years during the tribulation period in sackcloth, which there are a number of references to prophets in sackcloth and people being in sackcloth in the Bible, always a symbol of mourning, a symbol of judgment that is coming, these kinds of things, kind of uh, bad news, uh, (laughs) essentially, that the prophets would put on to, to symbolize, I've got a message of judgment for you. And we can have the tendency to think of that as being like, uh, that's bad. And, you know, that's mean of God. Why, why is he, why is he doing this? This is, uh, uh, capricious of him and, uh, in it just not, not nice. And that sort of idea that we can unfortunately get wrapped up in. But if we think about it, logically, Three and a half years of prophesying, miracles, a constant reminder of coming judgment upon you for three and a half years daily. Uh, in today's world, it, we, you know, uh, dispensationalists, even in the 90s, were wondering, oh, it must be TV, the miracle of television. That's how the whole world is going to be able to see these events take place. Well, yeah, uh, either that or you could pull out your phone and watch it live wherever you are. So TV is sort of put to shame in today's world with our ability for these things to actually happen. So uh, CNN, uh, maybe it'll still be a thing by then. I'm, I don't know. Uh, or 24-hour news will definitely be a thing, whatever the network is. And they're going to be covering these two guys and the things that they're doing, the whole world is going to see this taking place. That is God's grace for three and a half years before he pours out judgment. And I would encourage us to uh, see the world today in kind of the same light. We are not, uh, we are not living in the tribulation period today. COVID is not uh, the fourth seal or some of these crazy things that you're going to see on the internet if you want to, to look for it. However, God is still extending his grace. Uh, in our call to worship this morning, I tell you, Psalm 119 is very, uh, very uh, convicting, to say the least. You read David. Uh, these people are breaking your law, Lord, right, flaunting it right in front of you. How long will you wait? Wow. Uh, think about America today and the outrageous uh, treatment of, of God in the image of man that we are all created in. Uh, if you're, if you're, into YouTube, I would send you to, uh, I don't agree with everything that Doug Wilson says. He says a lot of things that are crazy, but he had a really great video talking about a segment on Tucker Carlson. I think if you put that in your search on YouTube, uh, Tucker Carlson's take on uh, what's going on in the world today and how this that Tucker Carlson gets it better than any Christian theologians. What's going on with transgenderism, abortion, and all of these things? An absolute flaunting destruction of the idea that man is created in God's image. And that's what's happening today, that they are trying to erase that idea from our conscience. And they, it's not going to happen. Because if you trust in God's word, we know that we are created in his image. And God right now is being gracious to us 
in America. So let us take advantage of God's grace with the time that we have. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this ancient text uh, of Revelation that speaks of the future, but has so much to say to us about our lives today. I just pray, Lord, that your word would work in our hearts and in our minds and that we would not take your grace for granted, knowing that today is the day of salvation. Uh, the time of your judgment is drawing more and more near. The, de- the day is dawning. We can see the light on the horizon from where we are today. So may you help us to not be children of darkness, but rather children of light, being faithful to you and your word in the time that we have left until you come again for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.